the minute I get a chance to get on stage in front of people that have never seen me before and make them laugh, it's the greatest feeling. You, if you could bottle that, you would be a billionaire. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? This is Blake Fletcher, the Half Hour Intern. In today's episode, I interview Quincy Johnson II, who is a stand-up comedian. So like most comedians, uh, Quincy is not able to make a full-time living by being a stand-up comedian. However, unlike most comedians, he does get paid some money to be a stand-up comedian. So he'll get, we'll get to learn about that kind of, um, in between living of a stand-up comedian and he'll tell us all about his first time on stage and completely bombing and what that was like for years and now what it's like to be able to make entire rooms of people laugh without further ado here is stand-up comedian quincy thanks so much for being on the show man thanks for having me absolutely so why don't you take us back and tell us about you getting started like when you started at what age and what inspired you to get started doing comedy uh, my first outing for stand-up, uh, well, actually a little, little information. I've always loved stand-up comedy. I just never had the balls to do it. So <laughs> all throughout uh, high school and college, I did acting. I was in improv, but I never wanted to do stand-up because I just didn't think I was funny enough to do it. Uh, when I moved to L.A. to pursue acting, you know, acting gigs weren't coming through. And one day a friend of mine was like, dude, you should go to this open mic. Uh, just check it out. See what's going on. Uh, so I went to the Hollywood improv on a Tuesday when they hold their regular open mic and I sat there terrified. I didn't get picked to get on stage, but I sat there and watched people get up. Yeah. And at that point I was like, I think I can maybe do this. So I went to the improv religiously for four years and bombed for four years. (laughs) Wait, so what, so what age exactly was this happening? Uh, that was when I was twin. That was in 2008. So I was 25. Okay. Yeah, I was 25. Uh, just for four straight years trying to learn how to write a joke because I had no idea. I was just, I've, I've seen people do comedy. I love like stand up comedy, uh, Patrice O'Neill, Pat Oswalt and Doug Stanhope. And for the first four years of my life, I was just trying to not be them. Because every joke <laughs> I wrote was a Patrice O'Neill joke, or this is what I think Doug Stanhope would sound like. Yeah, and definitely. that wasn't who I am. So it wouldn't work because I was trying to be somebody else on stage. And after, after about four years, I wrote my first good joke that got a real laugh. And I was like, okay, now this is making sense. What is it like for those first four years getting up over and over and over again, even though you're not getting tons of laughs? I, that's got to be hard to go back the following week. It's it's soul sucking. It's heartbreaking. It's it's the thing that keeps it, when you get on stage for the first time and do comedy. One of two things will happen. Either you're going to tell yourself, I love this and can never not do it again. Or you're going to hate it completely. Yeah. There is no in between. And that is the the guiding factor to how far you will go in comedy, because a lot of people have their ego tied into their performance or just their existence. Yeah. And they'll continue to they'll continue to do stand up even if they hate it. 
simply because they don't want to prove they don't want to prove themselves wrong by saying I can't do this. Yeah, you don't want to give up. You don't want to give up. But if you if you hate it from the very beginning, you're never going to learn to love it. It's like trying to stay in a relationship with someone you don't like. It's impossible. You can't make it work. Definitely. And you're probably going to be a dick in that relationship the same way that that person who's not having a good time doing stand-up is probably never going to write really good jokes because they're not having a good time to begin with. Yeah. They're they're the person that, oh, I do stand-up. I've done it for six months and now I'm going to take a four-month break because getting to open mics is hard and I'm just and then when they try to come back to it, it's like, you know, you're starting from zero again. You, you can't pause like you can't go. I did stand up six months, pause and then just jump back in at the six month mark. You have to start over. Yeah, because it's, it's a constant thing. You it's a muscle. It, it goes into atrophy if you don't exercise it. Yeah, for sure. That's funny to hear you say that. I have some other friends that do stand up and they've all said the exact same thing after after exactly what you said, taking a few months off because other th- other stuff comes up and then they have another night come up and they say it's just it's so hard to get back up after a break like that. So talk to us about the development of kind of your own voice and your own persona and how do you feel like you have a persona on stage? Do you feel like you're now just able to be yourself? How did you move away from, you know, sounding like Patrice O'Neill or telling a Patton Oswalt joke? Uh, it was after the first time I did 10 minutes of comedy. I did 10 minutes and I only had three minutes of jokes. After that, the first three minutes of jokes where I was like, hey, I'm getting laughs, but I was out of material. I just started talking about what the stuff I like. It was one of those things where you you have thoughts that you always have. You have the notes that you've written, but haven't fleshed out a joke. And I just started talking about like being a dad and having a son at a young age and going to an all black college. And that started that made me connect with the audience more because it was truly genuine. It wasn't me going here's this thing that I think is really funny. It was, here's me. I hope it entertains you because everything you write isn't going to be great. Every joke you write as a comedian is not going to be the next killer bit that gets you a standing ovation and sells a t-shirt to a fan. You, but you got to get the bad shit out to find the funny. So I was able to get up there and just start talking about me as a person and that was funny enough to carry me through it. It, it wasn't a, it wasn't my best set ever. No, not at all. But it was enough to let me realize I this can just be myself. I can keep yeah. on doing going forward. Yeah. I can just give I me expressing my voice is more successful than me trying to express what I think someone else's voice sounds like. Yeah. How did that change the whole experience for you then? I imagine that that stand up was a lot more fun for you after that. Uh, it, it's it's been more fun just because I know whenever I come up with an idea, I now know exactly what I want to do with it. And it allows me to write new material more often as opposed to getting bored with an old joke or just sitting on the same five minute set for two, three years. Like most people that I know do, unfortunately, I write five minutes of material a month. Wow, that's really good. No, that's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. But that. I do that. I got that inspiration from like Louis C.K. Yeah. And Chris Rock and guys like that, where if you write five minutes a month at the end of the year, you've got an hour of material. But 
I'm not saying all all five minutes every month is like super great. One month I wrote I was in a really dark, weird place in my mind. And I wrote five minutes on child molestation and murder. I can't take that to a comedy club, but it's still material that has gotten, you know, has entertained people at a dark at a dark uh, material show. So, yeah, I'm for not sure. Say everything I write is TV ready. I can throw this on Conan. Give me a special. But I I'm constantly creating new content for myself so that I'm never bored with the idea of I've been doing these jokes forever. I hate comedy again. Absolutely. And you mentioned earlier the muscle of getting up there on stage. If you're forcing yourself to write five minutes every month, even if you're writing five terrible minutes on in a particular month, you still wrote five minutes of material that month. Um, so, I mean, it's no, it, it's how you, you use the analogy of a muscle that truly is like going to the gym. If you force yourself to go to the gym on a day when you have no energy and you feel like crap, there's still something to be said for just having gone, you know, um, yeah. and that that can be really productive. Almost oh, definitely. It's a it's that thing where it's a double edged sword because. When you get booked at a comedy club for like a weekend, you have to do the same set because the club wants you to be great. They don't want you to be expressive or an artist trying to find your voice they want what's already established which yeah. guarantees the customers are going to keep drinking eating and be entertained from start to finish so if you're a person who just goes up and freestyles and writes whatever every day when you get on stage you're never going to have a routine but you can never get stuck in your routine because then you become stagnant and it's not alive anymore it's not it doesn't feel fresh when you do it it feels like you're just reciting from a from a notepad yeah for like sure when you, see a, when you see a comic get thrown by a heckler or by a distraction and they go where was i what was i talking about it's like okay now you're just reciting a script to us and that doesn't feel genuine yeah definitely well and i guess that that's where it's so important to really establish your voice and who you are like you bring up someone like louis he, he writes so much material that people, when they go, don't really know what they're going to see, but it all feels like him. You know, like all, all the jokes are so different and sound so different, but it feels like him. So I guess if, if a club were to book you, at least they would know the, the source of, of the material that you're writing, you know? When you got up there that first time and you did not, like the very first time ever, and you were not doing well, what about it <laughs> were you like, yeah, this is something I want to keep doing? Most people, I imagine, if you were to force them to get up on stage in front of people and do anything, uh, stand-up or public speaking, whatever it is, like you said, it could be a really horrifying experience. And then you get off the stage and you're like, I'm definitely never doing it, that again. What made it the other way for you? I, I don't, I can't put it into words because it's the weirdest feeling I've ever had. I was so horrible, but so in love at the same time. Like the minute I stepped on the, the first time my name was chosen and I looked at the roster at the improv and my name was on there. I was like, okay, this is real. And I got the butterflies in my stomach. My, my, I, my heart was racing. And when I got on stage and got no laughs, that three minutes felt like a year. But when I finished, I was like, I did it. Wow, that it was exhilarating to me. As awful as I was, I was excited by it. So it made me go, I want to do this again, but I just have to try to find it, find a way to get funny. Yeah. 
And that was that was what the struggle was. Once I realized I truly love this, then all I wanted to do was be funny from that day forward. Yeah, for sure. So basically, it was just kind of the rush of emotion and everything of being up there on stage. Almost oh, definitely. There's there's no better feeling. I don't care how stressed I am now in life or if I'm having a bad day or if the world doesn't make sense. The minute I get a chance to get on stage in front of people that have never seen me before and make them laugh. It's the greatest feeling. You, if you could bottle that, you would be a billionaire because that's the that's the greatest feeling on the planet. It's better than sex. That's so cool, man. I I was on your Twitter earlier and I saw a tweet from you, uh, like I think it was yesterday or something, that you were mentioning after a set, a woman coming up to you and saying that she was just crying, laughing during your entire set, and just like yes. what, like what does it feel like to have someone say something like that to you? It's it's now. Because, you know, I've, I'm so egotistical behind the idea of I know I can make people laugh. When I hear it, it makes me go, this is what all the struggle has been for. Like, it, I, I, I'm not surprised by it because that's what the goal is when you do comedy. You want to make <laughs> yeah. laugh. Yeah. So for someone to come up and say, I was crying with laughter, it just, it just made me go, Jesus, this is it's all coming together. You know what I'm saying? Like you don't, you're, it's not going to happen every set. I'm not expecting everybody to be in tears or I'm going to be a failure, but it's just another, an, another little notch on the belt where you're like, this lady was in tears. I was that funny. Yeah. Well, talk about the, I guess like the feeling or uh, the culture is like the wrong word, but I'm sure every comedy club and every, every single audience kind of, develops their own little mini culture and their own little mini vibe um and you know when one person starts laughing that makes other people laugh and so on and so on I, have there been experiences where you have a set you go and no one laughs at it and then the very next night you have like basically the same set and everyone laughs at it oh most definitely it's 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 subjective the greatest thing uh the greatest quote i ever heard about comedy is from bill burr he was on comedian's uh, getting coffee with Jerry Seinfeld. And he said, I I had to realize that the minute I say something, it's it no longer belongs to me because it's getting filtered through someone else's ears, their life experience, everything that they've been through, and they have to decide whether or not it's funny. So I can't go up on stage and go, this is funny. You have to laugh. It's just based on where you are, who they are. Uh, I've done a joke. One of my... One of my favorite jokes is about uh, starting a YouTube campaign where men counsel men online saying, hey, don't get stressed out about women because they end up getting fat. Right. (laughs) It's just it's a it's a goofy joke. Guys seem to love it. Women seem to hate it. One day after a set in Long Beach, a woman comes up and says, I want to slap you. And I was like, what are you talking about? She was like, I'm a woman who was prom queen. I got divorced. I have three kids and I gained weight and I don't want to go back to my high school reunion. And that joke was about me. I said, I've never met you. You know, like yeah, it's one of those things totally. where if you're in the room and people connect with it, then you're going to you're going to kill them. Yeah. But if you're in the room and it's Christian conservative and you open up with a rape joke, you're even if it's funny, it's not going to be funny to them because that's not what they want to hear at that time. Yeah, for so, sure. That you, kind of stuff is have, so crazy to me. Like, why are why are you at a comedy show? 
Like, what what are you doing? Like, the chances of someone not making a fat joke for three hours of comedy is pretty slim, you know? I uh, Or maybe people just want only self-deprecating humor, like Louis C.K. or something, you know? It's so funny that you put something out there and somebody would take that personally. But that that's the thing. Most people's idea of comedy isn't stand-up. Their idea of comedy is what they're shown on TV, where it's canned laughter and like the Big Bang Theory. It's not funny, but it's funny, you know? Yeah. You you watch it and there's there's an audience with an applause sign above them and they have the cues when to laugh. Like you this is where I'm supposed to laugh. Stand up doesn't tell you when you're supposed to laugh. You just laugh because it's funny. But there is no okay, I'm going to tell this joke, I'm going to pause, this is where you laugh, then I'm going to tell another setup, and you're going to laugh during, like, there's been times where somebody's just gone on stage and says, hey, I, I farted before I came up here. That's not a joke, it's the setup or whatever, but then three people may start laughing at that, and five <laughs> people laugh at the punchline. Like, there's no guarantee when an audience is going to laugh at you. That you don't know. That might be the greatest joke ever. I <laughs> I might start my podcast out like that from now on. That's a great way to start out. <laughs> so talk yeah, about just, the it, uh, the negative side of everything now. Like we've talked about some of the the awesome uh, emotions and feelings and experiences that you can have. Like what what is it like being heckled on stage? I I can't even fathom like the extent to which I would just want to punch someone in the face if they were yelling and talking while, you know, I'm up there trying to do my set. It's there's, there's two types of heckling. It, it, everybody who talks during a show isn't a heckler. That's the, that's the first mistake most comics make. A lot of people want to be involved because it's a live show. Comedy is the only thing where you can have audience interaction and it actually be positive if you allow it. You can't do that at a th- in, in theater. You can't do that at a movie. You can't because if you yell at the screen, people get upset. But you can talk to a comic. If somebody's there just being a belligerent asshole, then they came there just to be belligerent. Like nobody has ever gone to a comedy show and the comedian was just unless the comedian attacked them verbally to the point where it was like, dude, you've made it uncomfortable. Now I'm retaliating. Nobody has ever gone to a show and gone. I hear a joke now's the time when I'm going to fucking this one joke made me an asshole. Now they come <laughs> to be asshole. Yeah, for sure. It's, you're, in, you're in small town America. People want attention. It's the, it's the place everybody wants to go to. So yeah, assholes are going to show up. But if somebody's there and you start doing a joke and they like, especially in black rooms, they don't, they want to be involved in the show. They want to say stuff like, Oh, you stupid. Oh, no, you didn't. Oh, this motherfucker's crazy. That's not heckling. That's them laughing and giving you accolade. But if you don't know that that's what that is, you're going to most comics will be like, man, can you shut up so I can do my jokes? Yeah, and yeah now, for sure. now you've made an enemy out of someone who was actually supporting you. Yeah. And like, now they're going to really start heckling you. Yeah. And that because they they don't have to back down. There's no there's no gate or it's not roadhouse. There's no cage in front of the performers like they are within steps away from you. And the only thing separating you is like two stairs onto the platform that is called the stage. Yeah. So it's it's one of those things where if someone is actually heckling, heckling, you can handle it one of two ways. Just go, hey, get this dude out of here. Like you you never want to show weakness. You don't want to go, 
this guy's being, hey, man, please, can I can I please do my joke? Like once you start begging them or asking for them to be human, you've actually lost the battle because you're always going to win as long as you have the microphone in your hand. You don't have to get physical with them. If you can out talk a heckler, then just out talk them. If you don't want to acknowledge them, just talk over them. You have a microphone with a speaker system. But <laughs> a, a, a heckler attacking you who came there to heckle you don't have to acknowledge them. Like I learned, that's one of the uh, things I learned in doing uh, improv when we did shows at local high schools. We had a question answer session and everybody knows high school kids want to be funny. So they're going to say the craziest, dumbest things and you can't respond to those things because you're in front of a high school kid. So you can't say, uh, if, if it's a question about sex and we're not allowed to talk about sex, you can't talk about it. Yeah. And you can't acknowledge it. So when they yell out, what's sex like in college? You have to go, I don't have a saxophone. Like you just have to play it off because <laughs> everybody, if you, as long as you don't acknowledge it, nobody cares. So you don't have to acknowledge that heckler. It doesn't hurt you to go, I'm not even going to pay attention to this dude. Yeah. If you want to, like most people now, they go, oh, if you can attack a heckler and crush him, that makes you a great comic. No, that just means you're a good shit talker. You still have to finish a set and be funny. Yeah. If the best thing about your set that night was the the thing you said to the heckler, you're not a very good comic. Yeah. Because you really can't take point. that on. You can't take that on stage. You can't. Conan's not going to book you because you handled a heckler well on YouTube. You make it a bunch <laughs> of views. Yeah. You know, they may somebody may go, "Oh man, this guy's good at handling hecklers. Look at all the views he got." But now you're just allowing everybody to go. Hey, when this guy comes to town he can deal with hecklers. So let's bring some hecklers. Yeah. Let's all talk shit to him because we want to see what he's going to say next. They're not there for your comedy. And that's not what comedy is. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, man. That's a really good point. I, um, so I saw on a, uh, YouTube clip of yours, uh, when you were doing some stand up in Vegas, that it is part of a joke. You were talking about growing up in the hood. I, I assume that's true that you grew up in the hood. Yeah, definitely. How do you I feel? I don't sound it, but I did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't sound it. Don't look like it, but it totally did. Uh, yeah. So how do you feel that that, like, I guess, impacted your stand-up or that your style of comedy? It's, it, it didn't impact my style. It just allowed me to understand what life is on both sides of the tracks. Like, I'm born and raised in the hood. Uh parents my, my dad still lives in chicago and in, in roughly the hood it's not like the projects but it's the hood uh mom was able to uplift herself got her education and moved out so i've lived in the suburbs but i've been in the suburbs in people's houses that have never known hunger or never known struggle and it's the craziest thing to me because they can't fathom it because it doesn't exist to them yeah like I've, I've been when I was in high school, I went to a kid's house and his dog went berserk because I was the first black person to ever be in that house. And the dog had never seen somebody with my skin color. It didn't know what to do. Like, that's insane to me. But they were just like, oh, that's interesting. I was like, no, that's in. You've never had a black person. <laughs> that's in a your racist home. ass dog you got right there. Well, he didn't hate me. He didn't like attack. He just didn't understand why I looked so different. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, it was one of those things where once I and I was the one who had to bridge it because they were like, I don't know why the dog's so excited. I was like, I'm probably the first black. I was just joking. Like, am I the first black person he's ever seen? 
And then they thought about it and was like, yeah, we've never had someone black in our home. What? You've never had anyone outside of your race in your neighborhood or home. Like that's, they don't get it, you know? And I'm able to, I can talk about stuff like that because I've experienced it. Most people haven't. Being in in a, a neighborhood where somebody will, they, people will shut down the street themselves to throw a block party. There's no, there's no permits. There's no permission from the city. They just do it because it's what the neighborhood does. You couldn't do that in, in, in some places. People would call and make a complaint. And it's like, no, the entire community or this block of this neighborhood are all friends. Everyone knows each other. They're all coming out to hang out together. And they decided to shut the street down. Yeah, that's. Yeah amazing but it doesn't exist in most places so being able to see stuff like that lets me connect with a broader scope of an audience where i can go into a room in south central or in inglewood and still get laughs or go into a room in pasadena or burbank and still get laughs because i know i can talk about this stuff and these guys will get it or i can talk about this stuff and these guys will get it or I can just bridge the gap and talk about me and everybody can relate to it. But yeah. you can always tailor your jokes. Like, I'm not saying change who you are. I'm just saying I know my joke about being a single father will work better in a room full of dudes who are single fathers as opposed to a room full of married men who have happy relationships and don't know what it's like to be a single dad. Yeah. Well, to what you said earlier about how much better it is for both you and the audience when you're being your authentic self. I mean, that experience just lets you be your authentic self basically all of the time, you know, and like how much better does the do any of the jokes come off when that is the case? You know, it's not like you're telling a joke about a tornado when you've never even seen a tornado before, you know, which I'm, I mean, most comedians do have jokes about the hood and stuff like that. But to your point, they probably have no idea what that life is like. Exactly. Like you can't, it's it's one of those, like if you are from out of town and you move to LA and the first thing you go is like, traffic is crazy in this town. Yeah. Everybody knows that we all live here. You're not giving us a thing we've never heard before. Yeah. So that's that's not genuine because you're not saying I didn't know traffic was going to be this crazy. I'm from a small town where we only have one road, which is now selling your experience to the audience. You're just going, here's the thing I saw. Did you guys see it too? Hoping. And it's like, that's not, that's not funny. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta talk about you, not just what you see. Definitely, man. So tell us about your joke writing process and uh, that five minutes that you try to do every month. Are you, do you have like specific days that you set aside? Do you just wait for lightning to strike and then you run and grab a pen? Every, now every day I just, the cell phone is the greatest invention on the planet because it has my little note, my Evernote notepad in it. Every day when I see something or I'll have a notion, I can just jot down that note. And when it's time to start writing new material, I just roll, scroll through my random notes for the month and say, why would this be funny? Or what is this about? Some of the stuff is totally irreverent and makes no sense, but I have to have enough confidence in myself to say, I think this would be funny go out there and try it. If it bombs, it bombs. But I still have to, I still have to go. I have enough confidence to say this might, this might work. Yeah. Like you, you go sit at a coffee shop and people watch or 
you just think about an ex-girlfriend and think about ex-relationships or why relationships are crazy and you just write it like you just you just gotta write everything you do is an experience that may or may not work so just give it a try and if it doesn't work move on to the next one don't go no this has to work it's like okay i tried it maybe i need to retool it but if i sit and say i had to i had to make a dental appointment and i was like that's weird. I had to make a dental appointment because dentistry isn't a real thing. That makes no sense now, but I have a joke that now works where I tell people I think dentistry is alien technology because it didn't exist. It, it, it's it's something we invented that is actually killing us and it, it seems to work. So it works. Dude, I just had this conversation with somebody like two weeks ago. I was like, why do we have dentists? Like, that's the weirdest thing. That's funny that that was one of the things that you had written down. That it is literally insane that, that dentistry is even a thing. Yeah. Like, the, the I, I don't know who said it, but it was the idea that we created medicine so that we could be immortal. And by doing that, we're actually killing ourselves because we're trying to get older and older, but old people are useless. And I was like, Jesus, that's, you know what I'm saying? That's one of those things where you sit back and you go, it, it, it's not totally consensical because it's like, yeah, we need to save lives, but it makes sense because it, it, it totally does. Well, think about it on an even yeah. different level, which is like, so you make a pill to lower cholesterol. Well, now, okay, thank you. Now I can just keep eating quadruple cheeseburgers every day. Yeah. Like, yeah, I don't, like I don't have to solve the problem that actually is making my cholesterol out of whack <laughs> because you just gave me a pill to make the, like eventually things come back to bite you. And, and it, it, to the point of like the dentist, like, dude, if you're not brushing your teeth, you going to a dentist twice a year and having them scrape your teeth with some little metal instrument is not going to save your teeth. You need to be hopefully taking care of yourself the entire year round. And yeah, God forbid you need like, you have like a root canal or something like that, then yeah, you need like a dental surgeon to take care of that. But getting a teeth cleaning is probably not going to do much. And now I'm probably going to have like the uh, some big dentist organization uh, sending sending. I hope. Wait, are you sponsored by like Floss or something? Are we ruining? <laughs> no, but I guess I'm. I'm definitely not allowing that to happen in the future. Now. Yeah, it's, it's it's just like I. Everything is always on its ear. Basically, that's 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 the view of life. That's the the depressing part of being a comic. Everything, nothing is ever. I see it and I accept it. You always have to have a why is this happening kind of you have to be cynical you have to always be willing to look deeper than just what's presented to you and that's where you find well in my opinion that's where you find the funny in life definitely because i can't just go hey she told me she wants to go on a date now you have to dissect why do you find that that as present-mindedness and awareness and meditation and all that stuff becomes more in vogue and is something that I definitely try to incorporate into my own life. Do you find, do you look at like the yin and yang of that of like, okay, this is great because I'm this analytical person and I get to dissect all these different things of life and I'm jotting all these things down, but how much am I really then experiencing these things if I'm always trying to decide what they mean rather than just experiencing them? Uh, it's, yeah, it's the most, it's the loneliest feeling in the world when you know you're in, like when you sit in a room full of people who aren't comics 
and you hear them talk about what they think is funny or they just have a, a conversation that's dull and listless, but they're enjoying it because it's about what they did at the job today. And you just have to sit through it because you can't go, guys, this is really stupid. Here's why <laughs> I'm going to tell you why what you're saying makes absolutely no sense. Then everybody hates you. You're the asshole at the table yeah. because you're you're telling them why they are all why what they do is boring and awful. But they didn't yeah, want. And who are that. you to say any of that anyways? Well, you know, say it's like it when you, you can do it on stage because it's supposed to be comedy, but you can't do it in real life. But everything for us now is comedy. It's always a OK, you're going to talk about this. But here, let me. It's not like me trying to make a joke about it. It's just I heard this. This makes absolutely no sense. This is why. Like or it's just, hey. That you were talking about this, this random thing popped in my head. Let me say it. And they're going to look at you and be like, nobody, what are you talking about? Yeah. You know, like, even when I have conver- like this conversation, I already feel my rambling is going left and right all over the place, but that's just how my brain works. So I, <laughs> I can't stop it. It's just what I do. Yeah, no, no worries. Uh, do you, so yeah, you, do you wish to a certain extent that you could have like an on and off switch or do you, do you kind of like being on all the time because it allows you to have those five minutes every month? I, I wish I had an on off switch because I would be able to enjoy my job more. Like when I because when I go to work, I'm it's the most miserable feeling in the world. I work as a bartender and I see a high volume of people every day. And all of these people who I see think they're funny. They think they're interesting. They think they're the first person to ever make the joke about uh, give me a single for give me a double for a single price. Like they all think they are the original <laughs> funniest customer ever and i just have to fake laugh at it to keep them moving because if i'm like dude you know this like the oldest joke in the world they're gonna look at me like man come on i was just trying to be funny like why are you attacking my quote unquote joke you just gotta grit your teeth you hear it and just roll your eyes once they leave and go jesus not again yeah so it's basically like you you going down the road of comedy was kind of like opening up a pandora's box of sorts that now you cannot shut Definitely. You, it, once it's open, you can't shut it. Everything is, uh, I'm going to always be judgmental of everything I see in here, yeah. no matter what it is. Like you can't, you're never going to just sit back and accept what somebody hands you. You always have to go above and beyond just because that's how you're, how you're re- rewiring your brain. Yeah, that's interesting. So talk about, I, I, you I, mentioned I, having another job as, um, as a bartender. Talk about making a living as a comic and kind of how difficult that is. And the first time that you, that anyone paid you any money to do anything and what that was like. The first time I got paid for comedy, I got paid $7 for 10 minutes. And it was the, I got paid almost a dollar a minute to work. And it's, that's the craziest feeling in the world because even though it was only seven bucks, it was seven bucks to do the thing I love that I'm working my ass off to do. And it's more money I, than I've made in any time period doing the doing that thing. Yeah. yeah. So if you can consistently get paid to do comedy, do that. But it's not going to happen in L.A., L.A., New York, Chicago. They they're showcase cities. And unfortunately, I live in it. I chose to live in a showcase city. You're not going to make money as a stand up out here. You're going to become great. If you if you allow yourself, you can become great as a stand up out here and then go to other cities where they'll pay you money to be funny. But you're never going to make a living 
in a major market doing stand-up. You're Nobody saying because does. of how many famous comedians live in the area that that's who's kind of taking up all the money there? Well, no, they not even famous people don't even get paid to do stand-up out here. It's a showcase city. You're lucky to get on stage at the Improv or the Comedy Store or the Laugh Factory. Oh, like, interesting. I've seen, I've seen headliners, like huge, huge headliners who get paid 12 bucks for a set, for a drop-in set at the Improv. Like, here's 12 bucks and a free drink. Yeah, you know, they just because, want some practice or to have some fun. Yeah, it's like you can get up in your and where you live. We all live here. So being able to get up on the biggest stage is a blessing. Everybody can't get up on that stage. So they use that to their advantage, unfortunately, where if they if you can get money to do stand up, you have to go to people who want to see you do stand up out here. People don't want to see a particular person. They just want to see stand up. So it doesn't matter who's headlining that day. If if comedian A is famous and comedian B is famous, it doesn't matter which one shows up. They just need that famous comedian on the stage. Yeah. Nobody's there to go. Oh, this is the only reason I'm here is to see this guy. If he doesn't show up, I want my money back. They don't, they're not going to do that out here because it's it's an it's a mix of an oversaturation and an idea that. You're lucky to get on stage in Los Angeles. At the major clubs, at at the smaller places, everybody's performing for free no matter what. Yeah. Very few places are actually paying comics, which, you know, that's our existence. That's what you do. I've been doing comedy free for seven years. And at no point in time have I gone. If I don't get paid, I can't I, I'm not going up because the stage time is precious. Yeah. You, you can't just go. Nah, I'm, I'm too good to go on stage tonight. Like nobody's that egotistical. And you find that it's easier when you when you head out of town, it's easier for you to make money then. Oh, yeah, most definitely. Because when you head to a small town in Oregon where they don't have a comedy club, they have a bar that does comedy. You the people are there for a show. So as long as you're funny, they will pay you to come and they will pay you to come back. But they that's because you're the only that's the only game in town. Yeah. In L.A. on any on a regular basis. There's 20 comedy shows. So if one comedy show is charging $20 a ticket because it's the Hollywood Improv, world famous, known, if a customer doesn't want to pay 20 bucks, they can go to Echo Park, see just a high level of comedic talent for free at a bookstore. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point. You can just randomly walk into a coffee shop and there will be a show there whether you wanted it or not. So why is it then that you you have not have not moved yet? Are you still trying to use comedy as a jumping point for something else, or have you decided now that comedy is definitely what you want to do? Well, I'm 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 a full fledged comedian. I love it to death. But I moved to L.A. because I I got all my degrees in theater and acting. I want to be on television. I want to be a star, quote unquote. I fell in love with comedy after I finished school. So I still love theater. I still love acting. I want to do that as much as possible. But I also love comedy. Yeah. And I don't, I'm not used, I never got into comedy to go, I'm going to do this until my acting career kicks off. I did it. I fell in love with it. And now I do it and do it as much as possible. And acting has sort of taken a back seat. But this is the only place where you can still go to a commercial audition on a random Wednesday. I can't do that in Houston, Texas or in Phoenix. You know, I, you, like maybe you can get a, a one little, hey, local car commercial gig. But 
this is where the industry is. So I wanted, I've always wanted to be where that is because you only need one opportunity to be great in order to move to that next level. But you have to be in the place for opportunity. And that's what Los Angeles is for me. Absolutely. Did you by any chance see the, uh, the video of the, uh, the two leads, the guy and the girl in the new Star Wars movie? And they both have like a little quick like 10 second thing on their Instagrams of them watching the trailer for the new Star Wars? No, I didn't get a chance to see that. Oh, dude. It's, yeah. After this, you should check it out. It's so great. Both of them are just lose it because they, they did not get shown the trailer ahead of time of other people. So mm-hmm. the girl is in a hotel room with a friend and, you know, she's the main actor in the new Star Wars. Like her life is about to completely change or already has, you know, and uh, she's watching this. And she just starts crying like halfway through the commercial. And then the other guy is sitting there on the couch with either his buddy or his dad or something like that. And he is just nodding up and down like, yep, yep, yep. And then he like when something happens in the commercial, he jumps up off the couch and just flips out and starts jumping all over the place. It's uh, to your point, like if you're in the right place at the right time. I mean, these people are now going to be two of the most famous people in the entire world. But, you know, yeah, they they're, had they're to be in the right spot. Be in the franchise that makes $2 billion yeah. for one film. That's, and that, that's life-changing. Yeah. But you to be there. Like, the, the lead who's the, the new lead, he's from uh, England. He was in Attack the Block. He's been in some other stuff. But luckily, he was in England. He was an actor. And he was in that stuff. If he was living just, if he was just as talented, but he was living in France, none of those opportunities come to him. Yeah. Cause you gotta be where the, like Hollywood's not going to come looking for you. I know everybody thinks they're a beautiful butterfly and the world is their oyster. There are very few people Hollywood goes to look for. I may work menial jobs for the rest of my life trying to afford a lifestyle, but I'm still going to be here because Christoph Waltz didn't get discovered till he was 50 years old. Yeah. You know, and he was still doing theater. Like, yeah, he was super talented. He wasn't famous, but it took him 50 years to get the uh, role in the Tarantino movie. And now he's an Oscar winner and he's everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Very inspirational. Give us some advice for somebody to try to do stand up at wherever they live like a local town if they just want to maybe bolster their confidence a little bit try something out of their comfort zone maybe they do want to pursue some time in comedy um well first of all to 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 accomplish those first two goals of bolstering your confidence or doing something challenging or exciting would you even recommend that people even try doing stand-up and then for someone to try uh stand-up because they want to do it what is advice that you would give them as well uh, if to the, the first part, if you just have a notion to do stand up, do it. You don't have to move to a new city to do it. If you're in a small town, find a PA system and a microphone and just open an open mic. Just say, hey, we're going to do some jokes for 30 minutes to an hour. It doesn't have to be a five hour show. Just say, hey, we're going to try it. It's you. You're most likely going to fail. Everybody, that's the first thing you need to know about stand up when you do it you're most likely not going to be funny. And if you can power through that to continue doing it, to try to find a way to be funny, more power to you. Everybody should try it. It's the best. It's the greatest feeling in the world. That's why I I encourage everyone, if they want to do it, to actually do it. But know 
it's not just I got on stage the one time. Now I'm a comic. That's the that's the, the problem most people have. They go, I did it once. I'm a professional. No, it's 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 painstaking hard work. Yeah, it's it's hours of travel. It's constantly even if you're only on stage for five minutes, it's still a three hour setup for that five minutes outside of what you do for a living outside of your everyday life where you have to go to a place, wait, hope that you're funny, get off stage, go to another place to get minutes. Yeah. So if you want to start comedy wherever you are, do it. Just find a PA system, find some friends. I know people in Utah who do open mics in their garage. And then the local people, the neighborhood locals come sit down and watch. Do that. But know if you are only, if that's all you ever do up until the time you decide I'm now a professional comedian, you only market tested that one area. So start doing comedy in your town and then go to the neighboring town, go to a bar, go to the side of town you never visit because it's urban there and see if it works see what doesn't does like you it's it's one of those things it's a the litmus test doesn't exist but you've got to keep i'm gonna try this here's a sample here like you you have to do all that yourself because nobody's gonna do it for you yeah definitely man quincy where uh where can people find you at dude so obviously you're in los angeles do you have any uh like trips planned or is most of your stuff gonna be in la coming up I'm based in L.A. I'll be in Cleveland November 18th through the 22nd for the Cleveland Comedy Festival, uh, Cleveland, Ohio. And then I travel. My travel schedule is weird because since I work at the Staples Center basketball and hockey season, I'm usually just L.A. based. And I may go out to like Ventura, Santa Barbara, things like that. But during the season, I'm pretty much city based. Uh after summertime, though, I'm pretty much everywhere. If you follow me on Twitter at Quincy Johnson, II, all one word, uh, I usually post up where I'm going to be there or find me on Facebook, Quincy Johnson, the second. I post up all of my travel dates and just comedy shows in general on that. Awesome, man. We will uh, we'll definitely come check you out. Dude, Quincy, thanks so much for your story and the advice and everything. It was awesome. Thank you much, man. Thanks for having me. Hey everyone, it's Blake. I hope you all enjoyed the episode. Just wanted to give you all a quick reminder that if you have any ideas for the show, be that a person that you would like me to interview or just a topic that you would like me to cover on the show and you want me to track someone down, or if you have a question for an episode like today's or any other episode that you were kind of biting your tongue and wishing that I had asked, you can submit all that through my website on the Submit Your Ideas link. And I will either track down an old guest to ask those questions for you or find that new guest that you want to hear from. Thanks so much.